Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj here with a super special announcement before we get into today's episode. I started Beyond the Pearls podcast in May of 2021, and now, almost two years later, we're coming up to our 100th episode. I mean, I can't believe it. And you know what? I'm getting a little palpitations right here, a little, you know, SVT, superventricular tachycardia. I can't help it. I always drop these pearls, you know. Reaching the 100th episode is a huge milestone. And to celebrate it, I wanted to do something special, which is give away digital copies of my latest book. And what's the title? It's going to be Morning Report, the subspecialties, of course, Beyond the Pearls. And I made the little hand gesture, but you can't see it. So if you're hearing this, check the show notes and learn more about the contest and click the link to get entered. And you can be one of six winners to receive a copy of the book. Thank you all so much for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. And I'm Dr. Raj. And you know what? I'm just totally in the mood to do something that's going to be super high yield. And I get a lot of medical students and residents and fellows are like, hey, man, you got to do more infectious disease stuff. You know, that's my jam. And I just want you to dive into it. So, yes, today is going to be infectious disease day. But I really wanted to do something that's practical, that's going to be high yield for the boards. And, you know, there's a little critical care in me. I'm, I'm kind of in this critical care mood lately. So I wanted to combine something that's seen on the floors, but also could be relevant if you folks are thinking about doing like a critical care fellowship or something like that. So today's topic, I mean, I wish I had like a drum roll so I could get really get into it, uh, is going to be Clostridioides difficile infection. Let's just call that C. diff just because that's like a tongue twister and I'd rather just say C. diff. So we're not about C. diff today. Let's do a little overview before we go diving into the pearls. And by the way, I got some questions at the end. So, you know, C. diff is a leading cause of hospital-acquired infectious diarrhea and results from fecal-oral transmission. And that's just gross when you just say fecal-oral. Like, how did it get in your mouth, you know? But I know how. Wash your hands with soap. <laughs> but, you know, when we talk about, you know, nosocomial infections, I think it's really important for the boards to realize where in the hospital you're talking about because the leading causes in the ICU are not the same causes on the floor. And the nosocomial infections in the ICU could be just really super nasty with resistant bugs compared to the floor. And even though we only have a small, tiny amount of beds in the ICU, like 10% of the whole hospital, they do have some nasty infections. And why am I bringing this up? So in the medical ICU, what's a real common nosocomial infection could be ventilator-associated pneumonias. You know what I mean? So that's huge. What else? Something we call CLABSIs, central line infections, you know? Uh, That's more ICU. But if you talk about the general floor, of course, you know what I'm going to say, urinary tract infections are going to be huge. So, you know, before you click the right answer on your boards, if they're asking you the leading cause of hospital-acquired infectious diarrhea, there's no questions asked, right? You're going to talk about C. diff. So the number of these infections, you know, reported in the U.S. has significantly increased since the early 2000s. A big large part of this is that 
Uh, there's been a really nasty strain out there because we've been given fluoroquinolones to almost everyone for everything. So what are some classic fluoroquinolones? You know, levofloxacine, moxifloxacine. Uh, of course, you go by the brand name, what, Levaquin, you know? And for, you know, my basic science geekers out there like me, and they ask you, well, how do fluoroquinolones work? Yeah, man, they inhibit an enzyme called DNA gyrase, otherwise known as dopoisomerase. So because we're using a lot of quinolones, boom, we're seeing, you know, a lot of resistant C. diff. But I think, you know, we're getting the memo out there. So looking at some epidemiology that, you know, recent estimates suggest we're having kind of a small downtrend about C. diff, but nothing to get excited about. So what are the risk factors for infection besides, hey, I, I gave someone antibiotics? And of course, I'm going to say any antibiotic can definitely cause C. diff. Even our good friend vancomycin, when we give it through what? The IV. Because if you're treating C. diff, it's definitely going to be you know, a majority through an oral route. But, you know, any antibiotic can do it. I think we all memorize what? Clindamycin, which I don't really use that commonly. But of course, I think about beta-lactam drugs, things like cephalosporins and penicillins and carbipenems can definitely do it. And of course, fluoroquinolones. Um, so antibiotic exposure, but definitely, you know, people on chemotherapy can get it older in age is a risk factor, underlying comorbidities, presence of like an inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. And I wanted to say people with solid organ transplants are going to be at a very high risk. You know, here at USC, we do lung transplant, we do kidney, we do heart, we do a lot of really awesome things. And yeah, when you're immunocompromised with steroids, you're on your prednisone, you're on mycophenolate, brand name Celsep, you're on tacrolimus, of course, you're really going to be predisposed to getting things like C. diff. Um, and a big one that I want to mention is always going to be on acid suppression medications. Of course, there's one that jumps to mind is good old you know, proton pump inhibitors, PPIs. And there was a time, I remember, we used to give PPIs to everyone for everything, but then we realized, hey, you know, whether the risk is big or not, there is a risk for, you know, osteoporosis, there's definitely a risk for ventilator-associated pneumonias, and there's definitely a risk for what? C. diff, you know what I mean? Because there's no acid in the stomach, it does a really good job. And when we talk about PPIs, you know, who could tell me what cell do they work on and what pump do they inhibit? So it inhibits the hydrogen potassium ATPase pump. Yeah, I went there. And it also works on the what? Parietal cell. Okay, that's where we have that hydrogen potassium ATPase pump. So be careful before giving PPIs to everyone, right? And what is going to help out with C. diff is definitely antibiotic stewardship. It's, you know, paramount. Why? Because we want to de-escalate. We don't want to give antibiotics when not necessary. And it's hard because, you know, what do I do? All my damage is in the medical ICU and it's all about treating appropriately, treating broadly, quickly, and then de-escalating. So definitely, you know, that's where antibiotic stewardship really plays a big hand. And <laughs> funny, I should say the word hand, hand washing with soap <laughs> and water is the gold standard for infection control. And let me just say this, uh, alcohol-based gels do not eliminate the spore. So remember that clostridium is a spore-forming bacteria, just like bacillus. So I want to say a couple things about colonization versus infection because I want people to realize that asymptomatic colonization definitely can occur. And this really affects how we make the diagnosis of C. diff in the sense that if we were just checking for the PCR, the genome of the uh, bacteria itself, that may not make the diagnosis because many of us are colonized with it. 
Therefore, nowadays, most of the time, what are we looking for is nucleic acid amplification testing of the toxins. You know what I mean? That's going to be key in the right clinical setting to say, hey, this is going to be C. diff with infection. Some people will call that, you know, C. dad, <laughs> clostridium difficile um, associated diarrhea. So when we talk about those who have a pathologic infection, which we're talking about, the incubation period can be as long as three months after you kind of perturb the intestinal floor with antibiotic agents. So that could be a long incubation period. And there have been documented community-acquired infections without, you know, previous healthcare setting exposure, without previous antibiotic agents, or both. And that's getting increasingly reported. That's kind of scary. So let's talk about the C. diff infection and some of these enterotoxins. So just as kind of like a walk through basic science lane, which you know I love doing, that C. diff produces enterotoxin, which is called toxin A, and cytotoxin, which is going to be toxin B, and those are going to be pathogenic. You know, symptomatic patients typically have watery diarrhea. It's usually not bloody. Uh, they usually have a crampy abdominal pain. Uh, they have malaise and sometimes some nausea and fever. So for lab studies, you know, you definitely have a marked leukocytosis. And I know that, you know, when I was in training and, you know, when we think about C. diff in the right setting, you think of that, that, that huge uh, leukomoid reaction, leukocytosis, that you have, you know, WBC counts in 30, 40, 50,000 sometimes. So, you know, um, definitely you want, if you're getting a basic metabolic panel, you want to look at the serum creatinine because if it's going to be elevated in renal failure, that may think that you have, you know, a very, very severe disease. And uh, it's also been associated with hypoalbuminemia. Radiographic findings, I'll be the first to say you cannot diagnose C. diff based upon imaging. They're very nonspecific. They may demonstrate colonic wall thickening, mucosal edema, fat stranding, and of course, uh, imaging indicative of uh, a megacolon. I'll just say it, colonoscopy, uh, not really routinely diagnostic. We would go around diagnosing it. But if you do it, I mean, there was a buzzword that just always is in the back of my head when I think about step one, which is called pseudomembrane, pseudomembranous colitis. So how do you make the diagnosis then? So now let's talk about some of the testing. So diagnosis is usually established by testing unformed stools from individuals not taking laxatives who have unexplained onset of diarrhea occurring three or more times a day. And I can't <laughs> say enough, make sure they're not on laxatives. And why do I say that? You know, when you're in the medical ICU, we're always talking about people's bowel movements. Are they constipated? Do they have a bowel movement? Let's put them on, you know, Colace and Senecot and da-da-da and Marilax. And next thing you know, we're doing rounds and they got diarrhea. And I'm not even looking at the medication list, which is why it's so important to always look at the med list. It's so important to have amazing pharmacists who rotate with me. So to make sure they're not off, they're off the laxatives. And in talking about working up these diseases, although highly specific and rapid, you know, these uh, enzyme immunoassay uh, testing for the presence of toxin A and B, they just really lack, you know, sensitivity. So amino, uh, these enzyme immunoassays testing for something called glutamate dehydrogenase, GDH. And this is like a antigen protein present in pretty much all C. diff isolates is sensitive, but it lacks specificity. So just talking about enzyme immunoassays for toxin A and B or GDH, they're out there, but they have their limitations. So what do we do? We do nucleic acid amplification testing, NAAT, for the C. diff toxin genes, okay? This is both sensitive and specific. 
if appropriate, uh, institutional school submission criteria are met, which is what we talked about already, no laxative use. And we want to make sure that there are more than three new onset, you know, unformed stools uh, that are unexplained within, you know, a 24-hour period. So there's a specific criteria to be met. And in this setting, if you meet the criteria, just doing this nucleic acid amplification test by itself is definitely sufficient. So what other people may do, I don't want to make it confusing, if you combine these enzyme amino assays for, you know, GDH and the toxin, you could do that. And But if you get disconcordant results, meaning one is positive, one is negative, then you really need to uh, use the nucleic acid amplification test to be the deal breaker in those cases. Okay. So I think it's appropriate. We kind of move on to treatment, right? So in infected patients, the antibiotic regimen associated with the infection should be stopped if possible. And you just can't stop it if you're treating a very serious disease and it gets really, really tough to manage these patients when you're in that situation. But of course, the no-brainer on board is stop the antibiotic if possible. And treatment is definitely dictated by the severity of the disease. And we'll talk about that in detail. So severe disease is defined by WBC count of 15,000 or greater, or semicreatinine of 1.5 or greater. And pretty much you know, the, the two drugs that we are going to be using uh, pretty much for a lot of patients are going to be oral fitidoxamine, which is preferred, or oral vancomycin. Both are going to be given for 10 days for both severe and non-severe disease. Both for severe and non-severe disease. I kind of want to repeat myself there. So someone's going to, you know, just, what about flagell? What about metronidazole? So really, there's such a super uber limited role for it. Metronidazole sounds good, but it really causes a lot of GI upset in itself. It's not fun to take. And if you're a big fan of alcohol, you better not be taking it. It can be used for non-severe disease if neither, you know, fitidoxamine or vanco is available. So for fulminant disease, which includes I'm in shock, I'm hypotensive, I'm toxin or even an ileus, then higher doses of oral nasogastric vancomycin and you could give IV metronidazole in these cases, IV metronidazole, you know, and possibly, you know, you could consider a vancomycin enema, especially when an ileus is present. And of course, I just want to mention if you have fulminant disease, there's no harm in consulting our friends in surgery, so surgical evaluation is warranted. So when we talk about disease severity for C. diff, the three categories are non-severe, severe, and fulminant. And for non-severe and severe disease, it's going to be the same regimen, which is we prefer fitoxamine, 200 milligrams twice daily for 10 days, or vancomycin, 125 milligrams four times a day for 10 days. And that's going to be the same for both non-severe and severe. If you have fulminant disease, it's going to be vancomycin, 500 milligrams four times a day. You can give that orally by, you know, nasogastric tube. Plus, you're going to give the metronidazole 500 milligrams IBQ eight hours, okay? And so these are going to be some broad guidelines. You can listen to the podcast again to write those down if you want to. So disease severity, non-severe, severe, and full. And I just want to say a few words about the drugs out there. So, you know, fitidoxamine, which is the fisid, it's been around for a while. People kind of ask me what category of drug is that. It's actually a macrolide, go figure. And people really asked me, so why do they prefer fidoxamine instead of vancomycin? So you folks made me go back to journals. So I want to get a little dorky in here. So there was actually a New England Journal of Medicine article that showed the rates of clinical cure after treatment with fidoxamine were non-inferior to those after treatment with vancomycin. 
Fidoxamine was associated with a significant lower rate of reoccurrence of C. diff. So that's then one of the main reasons why we're choosing fidoxamine is the lower rate of reoccurrence. Now, nitpicking on the drugs itself, there are certain microbiologic characteristics that may explain why there were favorable results in regards to the reoccurrence and less reoccurrence with fidoxamine. So fidoxamine rapidly kills C. diff, it's bacterial cytom versus Avanco, which inhibits growth, is bacterial static. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, along with its, you know, uh, fidoxamine has a more narrow antimicrobial spectrum, which is good. And it has a prolonged post-antibiotic effect against C. diff. And this wasn't observed in the cases of given the oral vancomycin. Um, so these are all going to be very interesting reasons. And I got that from reviewing the New England Journal of Medicine article, which is important because I know I'm always teaching board review. And sometimes to get the answer, you do have to go back to some of the classic journals that show the results. So let's spend a little time talking about recurrent infections, you know. So recurrent infections is reported in as many as 25% of patients and treatment recommendations uh, are going to be in different guidelines. I do want to talk about some of these treatment uh, regimens out there. So some studies have shown that, I'm not, I'm not joking here, and I know you, you know where I'm going with this, that, you know, a fecal transplant is effective in management of patients with multiple reoccurrences. And I'm going to spend some time with that because a real hot topic is a, a new fecal transplant just got FDA approval for recurrent C. diff. And that this is why I think it's going to be a super hot topic. But this last bullet point is going to be super important. So retesting the stool for C. diff after treatment for evidence of cure in patients who have had no symptoms is not recommended. So we don't go checking the stool again to see if there's, you know, a negative C. diff workup. You know, you don't have to do that. No retesting. So for, you know, the first and second reoccurrence that happens, what, what can we do? Well, the preferred, once again, is going to be fidoxamine, 200 milligrams twice daily. We'll give it for 10 days or twice daily for five days, followed by once every other day for 20 days. So we kind of taper it off, you know. And alternative to that would be talking about the oral vancomycin, 125 milligrams, four times a day. And we'll do that for 10 to 14 days, then twice daily for seven days, and once daily for seven days, then every two to three days for somewhere around two to eight weeks. So it's really, you're going to slow, uh, you're going to have that, that, that slow, slow taper off that. And for the second, you know, and third reoccurrences, you know, because there's a little overlap for the second, you know, once again, I just want to say one thing that is mentioned for the second and third that, hey, maybe we could start thinking about doing that, that fecal transplant. And so, you know, I don't want to start reading off all the different recommendations. You could look it up in the IDSA guidelines. I just wanted to give you the broad strokes. But, you know, if you're having the second or third reoccurrences on the guidelines, they may, they have recommended maybe concerned that fecal transplant. So I wanted to spend some time talking about something called Reboita, with R-E-B-Y-O-T-A. This is the FDA-approved treatment. And this is the um, first in-class fecal transplant indicated for prevention of reoccurrence of C. diff. Individuals were have to be 18 years of age or older, and they had approval based on a randomized double-blinded placebo-control trial called the PUNCH, P-U-N-C-H, in which a single dose of Reboita demonstrated superiority to placebo as treatment to reduce reoccurrence of 
C. diff after standard of care antibiotic treatment. So just wanted to mention this, you know, Reboida is a single dose and it's uh, for rectal administration. I'm sure someone was going to ask that, so I just wanted to uh, mention it. With that being said, I want to kind of bring it all together. I'm always about going beyond the pearls. So what is my take on pearls over here? C. diff, leading cause of hospital-acquired infectious diarrhea. Antibiotic stewardship is paramount in reducing it, the incidence of infection. Of course, I'm going to say it again, hand washing with soap and water to eliminate the spores. Nucleic acid amplification testing for the C. diff toxin genes is rapid, highly sensitive, and specific. So I can't say that enough. And treatment of the initial C. diff infection is dictated by disease severity, and we talked about that, as dividing into non-severe, severe, and fulminant. And for non-severe and severe, really the preferred drug of choice is orofidiloxamine because of the fact that in studies comparing it to vancomycin, orally, that it had decreased reoccurrence. Only when you have fulminant disease do you think about oral vanco combined with IV metronidazole. So let's see how you folks are doing. Let me ask you a couple of questions. 53-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for a two-day history of watery diarrhea occurring five times daily. She recently had acquired pneumonia, and you know what she got? Levoquin, levofloxacin, probably 750 milligrams daily. Uh, she did that a week ago. She takes no other meds on exam. She is a febrile, but you know, other vitals are normal, but the abdominal exam... Uh, bowel sounds are present with diffuse tenderness to palpation, uh, palpation, but no guarding or distension. Lab values show a leukocyte count of 12,000, a serum creatinine of 1,1, and they did stool testing for C. diff, which is positive. Uh, which of the following is the most appropriate? Let's do this together. Is it A, doing a fecal transplant? Uh, no, thank you. Uh, this is not reoccurrence. B, should we get some IV vancomycin? Uh, only if you want the red man syndrome, just joking. <laughs> no, but there's no role for IV Vanco when we talk about C. diff management. C, oral metronidazole. D, oral vancomycin. E, oral vancomycin plus IV metronidazole. So I'm going to take off E because this is not fulminant C. diff based upon the creatinine, the leukocyte count. So it really comes down to C and D. And what did I say? There really is no role for oral flagellate anymore. Your two choices are going to be phenoxamine or oral vanco. And since the only one here is oral vanco, the answer is going to be what? D. I mean, you folks are amazing. What about this? A 29-year-old woman is evaluated for multiple episodes of diarrhea and emesis uh, with significant abdominal pain and distension. She was hospitalized three days ago for E. coli, associated pyelonephritis, and treated with IV uh, ceftriaxone, brand name Rocephin. She takes no other meds. On exam, uh-oh, patient's confused. She is febrile at 101.3. Her blood pressure is hypotensive at 90 over 60. She's tachy at 125, to at 24. The abdomen is distended, decreased bowel sounds with tenderness to palpation with no parting. The remainder of the exam, I guess, is not contributory. They use some labs. The WBC count is 30,000, and her serum creatinine is um, 2.0. So elevated, her lactate is elevated at four. They did stool testing for C. diff, which is positive, and they imaged the colon, and um, there are areas of the large bowel that are very distended, sitting six centimeters in diameter, and the radiologist read it as possible toxic megacolon. Patients transferred to the ICU, and as they should, they got surgery involved right away. 
So the question is, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? A, time for the transplant, which is a horrible answer. This is not reoccurrence. Should we do some IV vanco? Uh, I just said a bunch of times, there's no role for IV vancomycin in C diff therapy. C, should we give oral metronidazole? D, oral vancomycin? Or E, oral vancomycin plus IV metronidazole? I think the key thing is, Recognizing what fulminant C. diff is based on the WBC count, based on the serum creatinine, based on the megacolon radiology, clinical presentation, hypotensive, septic, you name it. So the answer is E. Let's just do one more and we'll call it a day. 40 year old dude <laughs> presents to the emergency department with a two day history of diarrhea occurring six times daily. And that developed one week after completing a course of amoxicillin and clavonic acid, which is otherwise known as what? Augmentin. Very good. Oral augmentin. And the patient took this for diverticulitis. Kind of beyond to get diverticulitis, but all right. Uh, medical history is unremarkable. He takes no meds on exam. Low-grade fever at 100.9. Other vital signs are normal. Bowel sounds are present. Palpation elicits tenderness, but no guarding. Labs had a leukocytosis at 17,000, serum creatinine of 1.6, and stool testing was positive for C. diff. Which of the following is the most appropriate of the choices right here? Should we give some IV metronidazole by itself? That's choice A. And you know the answer is what? No, there's no role for solo IV metronidazole. Should we do B, oral phenidoxamine? C, oral vancomycin combined with rectal vancomycin. I don't think that's going to be choice in this case or a reasonable thing to do, uh, combining the oral with the rectal uh, vanco. I think that's going to be the wrong answer. And what about tapered and pulsed vanco? Well, this is not reoccurrent, so we shouldn't be tapering and pulsing anything. This is the first time. So even though this patient's going to be borderline, you want to keep a close eye on it to make sure we don't develop fulminant C. diff at the time. He definitely is severe. There's no questions asked about that. So how do we treat severe C. diff? Drug of choice is going to be oral pitidoxamine. So I would pick for these choices, be outstanding. So I hope you folks enjoyed this. For all the people saying, give us more idea. I hope you, you know, just totally dug this lecture. It's going to be high yield on your boards, on your USL money, on your IM boards. And I'll see you next time on my Beyond the Pearls podcast. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis. <laughs>